Welcome to the Blue Economy Primer, a New Orleans-based podcast where you learn from the experts the practical tools and solution sets that will empower your community to adapt and thrive in an age of climate and economic discontinuity. The following special edition of the Blue Economy Primer, available as a YouTube video with graphics or in audio-only format, is based on the multi-sector Blue Economy panel discussion titled, Building Resilient Communities and a Regenerative Blue Economy for Our Gulf Coast, which took place on May 31st, 2023 at the State of the Coast Conference in New Orleans, Louisiana. The panel, moderated by Deep Blue Academy, was part of the conference topic track, Preparing for Climate Change, Mitigation and Adaptation. For additional background information and support materials about the panel participants and links to the YouTube version that includes all of the graphics, please visit the Blue Economy Primer website at deepblue.institute backslash podcast. Thank you for your interest in the work of Deep Blue and our community resilience partners. My name is Greg DeLon. I am the founder and CEO of Deep Blue Institute and the managing director, uh, executive director of Deep Blue Academy, which is a nonprofit focused on uh, blue economy and blue technology development for the coast. So thinking about a resilient Louisiana coast, a resilient Gulf Coast, how did we develop the, the technologies and the solution sets that we need to save our own communities, uh, creating jobs, creating uh, solution sets, engineering solutions, et cetera, for our communities moving forward, looking at the next 50 to 100 years, but then also how do we turn that into economic activity that can be exported? So a little bit to what the governor mentioned, uh, these high demand solution sets that are gonna be necessary around the world. So uh, I am extremely pleased and proud and honored to have with us today a highly qualified uh, panel with some deep, deep expertise in all of the different sectors that are part of this discussion. So we're gonna be talking about building resilient communities and a regenerative blue economy for our Gulf Coast and all of the different sector components that go into that. So uh, to start out with, I'm gonna ask uh, each of our panel members to give a brief introduction, a little bit about their background, one to two minutes, uh, so that the audience knows who you are. And uh, again, you can start to think about what are you interested in hearing about from this panel about what the future looks like. John, you want to start out? Uh, I'm John Day. Uh, I'm a professor emeritus at Louisiana State University in the Oceanography Department, and I've been conducting research on the Mississippi Delta for over half a century. Hello, I'm Rebecca Conwell. I'm president and CEO of the UNO Research and Technology Foundation um, and The Beach, um, recently renamed Research Park at, at the University of New Orleans. Uh, as a background, I have a pretty eclectic one, which I think has, been, has done me well for this job. It goes back from, if I, if I just stick to New Orleans, I would say that um, I spent 15 years doing government affairs at Tulane University chief of staff for the President Cowan, ran his think tank. I uh, spent a couple of years as a consultant that included um, the, the early construction of a grand, grand prize type challenge, water challenge um, to develop sensors, um, and then spent three years working for uh, Mayor Landrieu as his senior advisor for economic development. Spent a little bit of time as well running a, a 
foundation that supports the city's recreation departments. Awesome, thank you. Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is John Atkinson. I'm the uh, president and CEO of the Idea Village. Uh, we're a nonprofit organization that supports startups in New Orleans and across the Gulf Coast. Uh, I also have the distinction of uh, being a founder uh, and fund administrator for an early stage equity fund called Lanyap Angels, uh, uh, where we invest in early stage startups. Uh, and I, prior to that, I was the founding director of the Center for Entrepreneurship and Community Development at Loyola University in New Orleans. Um, and so probably the least qualified person on this panel, but um, I'm bringing the uh, startup innovation uh, and entrepreneurial ecosystem perspective for how you build this into the future. Well, I think you're kind of perfect for this uh, panel, actually. Uh, Harry Vorhoff, Deputy Director of Coastal Activities in the Governor's Office. Uh, we, uh, in the Governor's Office of Coastal Activities, focus on supporting the chair of the CPRA board and really uh, kind of help provide support on the policy front and the legal front um, to support and kind of expand upon the state's coastal program and uh, uh, coastal master plan. And so uh, additional kind of policy efforts um, include uh, the governor's climate initiative you know, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which I'll touch on uh, in a few moments, uh, adaptive governance um, and, and other uh, policy reforms that we're looking to kind of help uh, kind of uh, leverage the state's coastal program. Um, I've been in this position for three years, and prior to that, I've served as an assistant attorney general uh, for the state uh, for, for the five years prior, focusing on representing uh, state agencies, particularly the natural resource uh, and environmental state agencies uh, in litigation and, and general counsel. Excited to be here. Hi, my name is Mark Culp. I'm a professor of geology at the University of New Orleans. I'm currently the uh, department chair for the Earth and Environmental Sciences Department and director of the Pontchartrain Institute for Environmental Sciences at UNO. I've been at UNO uh, slightly more than 23 years now working on coastal type issues. And prior to coming to UNO, uh, worked on coastal type things, specifically subsidence of the northern Gulf of Mexico for about four or five years. Uh, so I came down here originally thinking I'd be around for three years, and here it is 23 years later, so. <laughs> Fantastic, thank you. Well, uh, thanks again to our panel members. Uh, very, very pleased to have everybody here. Um, so this uh, diagram that you see up on the board is, I would say, for this audience and for this conference is something that we see over and over again in terms of looking at what the 50-year land loss uh, is projected to be for Louisiana, the statistic of Louisiana losing a football field worth of land every hour and a half. So, so this is kind of what we live and breathe in terms of this community and looking to the future about what can we possibly do about this and how is this not just a challenge for Louisiana and for the Gulf Coast, but in some ways how it could possibly be an opportunity for our communities moving forward in terms of developing these solution sets. Again, in terms of the context of this conference, I think uh, compared to the, uh, what may have been, uh, was referenced in 2010 compared to what we're seeing today, is more of this multidisciplinary approach, this sort of ecology, economy, ecosystem approach to uh, all the different elements that come together for coastal community resilience and what uh, we're calling the blue economy and blue technology. So how does economy and industry come together with government and policy, science and technology, 
uh, cultural and history, particularly in terms of preservation of cultural and history, education and training, so workforce development, but also K through 12 education, and how are we preparing our next generations to sort of live and breathe these solution sets and for this to be sort of what they're leaning into in terms of the future. And then the environment and health, so public health, but also health of the environment as we move forward. And all of this thinking about the balance between adaptation and retreat. Those are really key words in the work of what we're doing at uh, Deep Blue is, is adapting and retreating. And that's fundamentally what Louisiana, the Gulf Coast, and regions around the world are going to be facing in these low-lying coastal areas is what does adaptation look like and where adaptation doesn't, uh, isn't going to be enough, what does retreat look like, and what are the real, the real options, the real politique of what we're going to be facing in that respect. So this diagram, the uh, eco-solution space or ecosystem approach to this, uh, these sets of challenges is fundamentally the roadmap for uh, what I laid out with our panel members discussing about the different elements, the different sectors, and that's really the, the, what, what our different panel members represent is these different sectors of uh, uh, research and academia, government, private sector, uh, project work, policy, and uh, legislation, all these different pieces that are part of uh, an, an ecosystem, but then also a bit of a flywheel. So if you look at that bottom right area, those are sort of the projects that uh, organizations like CPRA and uh, uh, the, uh, the Water Institute, but also uh, companies like Comeet. So we have John representing Comeet today. Also have folks like Rob Lane in the room who are working uh, with Comeet. And those are the, some of the firms that are designing some of these real solution sets that include wastewater assimilation plants, but other types of wetland restoration, et cetera, et cetera. But the river diversions, all these different types of projects. As we move uh, counterclockwise, we see the education piece. So K, K through 12, community education, university and PhD uh, 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 partnerships degree and degree programs and study sponsorships. So how do organizations like UNO and LSU and Tulane and, and uh, uh, the HBCUs and, and all these different organizations that can be contributing to the talent group, the workforce development of what these solution sets look like in the future? Moving up to the top there, we have the ideation component of this. So sort of the high level think tank, some work that CPRA is doing and certainly the governor's office in the state uh, federal level stuff that's going on, and certainly what Deep Blue is trying to uh, help spur on. And then as we move over to the incubate and invest component, this is where we get into uh, some of the work that, uh, important work that people like John Atkinson is doing. So extremely important that he's on the panel today and uh, representing that portion of these new technologies. So what is the ecosystem? Uh, I, I spent about 20 years in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley in the incubation and acceleration space. So what is Louisiana, what is New Orleans, what is the Gulf Coast doing in terms of creating opportunities for financing, identification of these technologies, uh, incubation and acceleration in terms of curriculum, but then also some of the funding, and then how does that, uh, the investment in the seeding, coaching, and guiding, and, and tracking of those companies as they start to develop the solution sets that then come back into that lower right and become real projects and real opportunities for, uh, for, for uh, what we're doing. 
So this again is uh, uh, some of the folks that we're going to be hearing from today. And uh, why don't we start off with uh, Harry coming up and talking a little bit about what's going on at the uh, state level with uh, some of the, his work. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate that. I've been asked to kind of set a, a little bit of the context and baseline kind of understanding for the discussion, uh, really focusing on kind of the context down here in South Louisiana. What are the issues we're, we're facing, you know, the most pressing issues, and what are some of the things the state is doing to address them? So what here is at stake, and you know, I apologize, you know, looking at, around the room, I have a sense that some of this will be somewhat remedial, but uh, you know, if nothing else, uh, I'm very excited to, to brag on CPRA and the, the master plan team and you know, the new coastal master plan. So we finally have you know, new, new maps that we can say are part of the coastal master plan, and so I'm excited to just show that off, if nothing else. But really, you know, we live down here in South Louisiana. Uh, we work down here. Many of us are from here and, and you know, want to live and die here. Uh, others are not and are frankly drawn to this place called South Louisiana uh, because of the culture. Because and really, it's a, you know a bunch of different cultures, right? Uh, that make up uh, you know the, the nearly two million people that live in South Louisiana. So there uh, uh, is a lot at stake. There's a lot to love. And what are those uh, challenges um, that we're facing down here? Uh, well, you know, this is the new maps. Instead of the red maps, we now have blue, which uh, are actually you know, is an upgrade for, for those uh, in particular who are colorblind, so they're able to fully see the, the coastal land loss. So that's a, kind of just a side note for everybody's awareness. Um, but uh, you know, this is the land loss we've seen uh, kind of to date. Um, this is the, the land loss projections in a, a future without action. But this is the low projection. Um, this is, projects you know, lower sea level rise, lower subsidence. You know, and this is the higher uh, projection in year 50. Uh, this is you know, what it looks like without, if we don't do anything. Um, we also are facing, so we're facing you know, rising seas, uh, subsiding coast. Uh, we're, we're also see, you know, seeing more uh, severe hurricanes and storms. Um, you know, don't need to remind folks of, of the 2020 hurricane season, which was a record uh, in terms of number of uh, hurricanes that made landfall, uh, only to be followed uh, in the year after with Hurricane Ida that, that tied Hurricane Laura in the, the most uh, intense hurricane to hit Louisiana. Um, but, you know, we are, as many of you uh, are very well aware and are working, you know, as part of this team, uh, and that you heard, you know, uh, very eloquently put, uh, you know, uh, during the lunch plenary with uh, the governor and, and Chairman Klein, you know that we have this 2023 coastal master plan, an updated master plan uh, that is going to really guide our efforts over the next uh, six years and really look projects out for 50 years. Um, and so this is hopefully is showing up well, but this is what the the 50 years of projects looks like. Um, you can see spread out well across the coast. Uh, it's a, a balance of restoration projects and risk reduction projects. Um, and you know, just to kind of put it a different way, you know, we have over $19 billion of dredging projects over the next 50 years, um, two and a half in, in programmatic, you know, smaller scale barrier uh, hydrologic restoration projects, barrier islands, um, you know, $14 billion in the levees and, and other structural risk reduction projects. Uh, but I do also want to really call out this non-structural risk reduction component uh, that I think is really exciting, you know, to this conversation um, because you know it really is kind of the next frontier in risk reduction. We're seeing more and more types of these projects. 
Um, you know, the Army Corps is endeavoring to do the, you know, a, a non-structural risk reduction project for the first time in southwest Louisiana with Southwest Coastal. Uh, that's a $3 billion project right there uh, that makes those non-structural and uh, marsh creation projects. And so, you know, that is a, an area that I think, you know, we have not seen this type of non-structural, which means, you know, elevating structures and homes, uh, flood proofing, and, and in some cases, voluntary acquisition. So I think that really kind of cuts to this conversation very well. Um, and so I, I did also just want to show you kind of what the, the future with action looks like um, to really emphasize, I think, you know, this is over 50 years, you know, in year 50, what, what the coast looks like with action. So we still have a significant amount of, of coastal land loss. We have significant, you know, land maintained. But, you know, the difference between the, the low scenario and the high scenario is significant. I mean, that is, uh, that is a, a huge component of, of what the, the future looks like, um, is that, you know, do we have high uh, sea level rise uh, or, or, or not as high, <laughs> frankly. I, I wouldn't even endeavor to say low. Um, and, and, you know, this is also, I just wanted to underscore the difference between uh, the flood depths uh, between the future with action and future without action. And so you can see a significant difference in, uh, in reducing uh, that, that uh, flood risk. And so, you know, what are the economic impacts that you see from the state's coastal program? Um, you know, annual spending, uh, you know, if this is actually old numbers. Uh, sorry for that. I thought I updated that. But, you know, as you heard, uh, Chip mentioned earlier, we are spending $1.6 billion this upcoming fiscal year uh, in coastal protection and restoration, and we're projecting to spend that much, you know, through the rest of this decade, and then, you know, beyond that, uh, it was also referenced that this fiscal cliff that the state is facing, um, and so we're going to certainly need to figure out where to find additional revenues uh, to, to backfill, you know, the, the the Deepwater Horizon oil spill dollars that we are, you know, really relying on significantly uh, over the next decade, and we'll, we'll still have uh, other revenue-sharing uh, sources of uh, funding for, for projects, but we'll, we'll, that is kind of the, the next frontier, and, and I think that through innovative project delivery, you can potentially kind of get uh, to, you know, supplemental projects uh, to really uh, supplement the state's coastal program. Um, I did also want to just focus a, a moment on, uh, you know, something our office and, and uh, Charles Sutcliffe, our chief resilience officer, has really been taking the lead on, and this is uh, the adaptive governance uh, initiative uh, that it really is looking to take the coastal master plan and all the modeling and all the science that goes into it and make sure that it is not just informing CPRA, but it is informing all of government and really folks outside of government to inform their decision making, to inform their investments in the coast <coughs> and, and, and across the coast. And, and I think this is something that uh, is very exciting. I think you know, within state government, you, I think everybody expects state government to be uh, well informed and, and not siloed. And this is an effort to kind of break down those silos and make sure that you know if you're planning a school or you're planning a hospital, you know that you're cognizant of well, what is that you know geography going to look like in 50 years? Um, and, and you know making sure that we're investing, you know, elevating structures if we need to, you know, putting them behind uh, structural flood risk reduction uh, systems and the like. Um, 
But then, you know, another important thing that uh, Governor Edwards wanted his administration to really focus in on is, is supplementing the state's coastal program with respect to reducing the state's greenhouse gas emissions. As I showed you know, earlier with the, the difference between the high and low scenarios of uh, what uh, South Louisiana looks like in, 20, uh, in 50 years, I mean, sea level rise is going to be a major driver. The intensity of storms is going to be a major driver. Um, if we can mitigate that, uh, then you know, we can really put ourselves in a better position uh, to, you know, really to, to continue to li live down here, which I think many of us want, want to do. Uh, and so Governor Edwards uh, in 2020 uh, put together a task force to figure out a path forward to try to come up with, a, you know, the, a kind of, it's, it's not the 2023 Coastal Master Plan, but maybe it's kind of analogous to the 2007 uh, master plan, you know, the state's first master plan, uh, you know, to really, you know, we have to take a, take a shot and, and put together a set of policies and program uh, recommendations that can put Louisiana on a path to net zero by 2050. Um, that's in line with the Paris Climate Accords and uh, is, you know, is aiming to avoid the worst of climate change. So uh, we're all already, as many of you Recognize we're already seeing uh, the impacts of climate change, but uh, to mitigate the sort of catastrophic climate change is, is what I think the, the realistic site is. Um, and so these are the, the uh, targets that the governor outlined in his executive order uh, from 2020. And that really kicked off a, a planning process, a 15 month, uh, 49 public meeting planning process that included uh, over 150 stakeholders who were officially at the table on the task force, advisory uh, groups, um, committees, uh, plus you know several rounds of public comment, and, and what we we and, and then informed by the best available science uh, when we endeavored on this, uh, the latest greenhouse gas inventory for the state was in 2010, and we quickly uh, recognized that we cannot rely on. 2010 science to uh, you know inform our decision making you know a decade later and so we, we commissioned an update to the inventory and determined uh, that uh, industrial emissions is far and away the biggest piece of the pie over two-thirds of our state's greenhouse gas footprint is coming from industrial emissions that's primarily in uh, petrochemical manufacturing and refining um, you know in that in that sector. But, uh, you know, and so you can see the, the main, you know, policy pillars of the Climate Action Plan, and it's renewable electricity generation. Uh, in 2018, we had only about 4% renewables uh, deployed in this state. Uh, that is quickly going up and is really, you know, we, you, we've seen, you know, the price of renewables go down significantly over the last decade. Um, and so that is becoming increasingly cost effective, uh, even, you know, putting aside the uh, climate uh, uh, need that we need to, to act on. Industrial electrification uh, is one way to get at our industrial emissions. Uh, that's things like, you know, you can electrify a pump, a compressor, kind of those e low temperature boilers. That won't get everything though, and that's where we're switching to kind of this low, uh, low carbon and no carbon hydrogen uh, and f other fuel switching uh, is another area where we can really uh, decarbonize our industrial emissions. So these are, you know, the, we did not just focus on those, uh, you know, renewables and hydrogen. You know, we put together a big, uh, you know, tried to cover the economy wide um, and take a, a very comprehensive look. Um, I will not get into that, but I did, you know, just want to touch on a few of the 
kind of administrative, uh, administration-led projects um, that we are focusing on. You know, one includes coastal carbon, you know, sequestering carbon through our restoration projects, um, and then ideally getting you know, revenue from that through crediting and reinvesting that into uh, the state's coastal program, uh, which can help hopefully mitigate against that uh, fiscal cliff that we're uh, seeing uh, in, in about eight years. Um, mapping industrial electrification, just to kind of really put it more clearly to, uh, to industry of, of where you can actually see the most gains. Uh, hydrogen hub is, is an opportunity through uh, the inflation uh, uh, Reduction Act, or no, sorry, the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Uh, there's an $8 billion co uh, competitive pot of funding uh, for uh, that the state is competing for with uh, Oklahoma and Arkansas uh, to, to really create this hydrogen hub that can help uh, decarbonize not only industry, but also transportation um, and other areas. Um, and then carbon capture is something that has been uh, a priority uh, of this administration as well. So, uh, you know, the industrial uh, carbon capture to, to complement the, uh, the, the natural carbon sequestration uh, as well. Um, you know, I might be, how am I doing on time? Good, okay. And then wanted to just, you know, kind of run through, you know, some additional priorities. You know, addressing methane is a big one. You know, that's an area where you can really, you know, the, the jobs uh, or the skill set is already there with much of our workforce uh, in, you know, in oil and gas. And so plugging orphan wells is an area where, you know, $25 million to do that last year. Um, and then we're looking to tighten regulations so that we have less orphan wells moving forward. Um, we'll be doing additional climate planning to drill down on some more specifics of, of where we can act and kind of uh, where we can really move the needle. Um, and so we're really excited about putting together a priority climate action plan through an EPA grant um, before the end of this administration, before the end of the year. And then there's just, you know, an incredible, I mean, these are just a, a smattering of, of different programs through, uh, you know, the, the two, the infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, but there are billions of dollars that the state is aggressively competing for to, to really move the needle on, on reducing the state's emissions. Um, and so these are the, you know, the, the investments that are uh, planned um, around the state. You know, we have, a, I think, a nice geographical spread. We are not focusing on just the coast. Um, even though it benefits the coast, I think there's a lot of, lot of opportunity across the board. Um, and I think that is, that does it for me. And uh, hopefully that's set the table for the rest of the discussion. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Harry. So we'll go to uh, John next. Okay, uh, what I'm, I'm going to talk about some things that I think are constraints on where society in general is heading and the, here in the coast and, and bring some things to the table that we need to think about as we move forward uh, through this century. Well, you've heard about this, but sea level rise is uh, accelerating and I, I don't think that's going to slow down. I mean, the climate science is pretty dismal when you look at it. Uh, uh, so, and we have, uh, and here are some of the climate forces that I think are going to impact the coastal zone. One, if you look at the upper, uh, yeah, just some of the climate forcing. So, up in the upper uh, uh, here, the, since 1991 to 2020, the precipitation has increased in the uh, upper mist in the, in the Ohio Basin, and that's where all the water comes from. 
and it's increased by 5 to 10 percent. So the climate is warming, there's more uh, water in the atmosphere, it's raining more up there, and, and that's where the water comes from that comes down the river. And so we've seen about a 25 percent increase in the Mississippi River discharge since um, the 1930s, and about a 70 percent ch uh, uh, change in the Atchafalaya River discharge. There's a lot of variability there, but we're going to get a lot more water coming down the river, and I think Sometime in this century, we're going to start exceeding regularly the project flood of the uh, MRNT project. So we've got a lot of water to deal with, and we can use that for coastal restoration, or we can try to keep it in channel in the Mississippi River, which I think probably just won't happen. Uh, if you move on and down in the middle there, this is a let's see here. Here we go. This was a, levy, a near levee failure that happened in, uh, at, down at Donaldsonville. And things like this, I think, will be more likely to uh, occur in the future with an increasing river discharge. Uh, this is the Hurricane Harvey footprint centered over southeastern Louisiana. Now, remember, Hurricane Harvey dumped a meter and a half of rain in about four days. If that were to happen in southeastern Louisiana, uh, it would, it would result in catastrophic flooding all over southeastern Louisiana, and I think it would equal what we had in Baton Rouge in 2016, and a meter and a half rain falling on New Orleans in three days, uh, it, you know, it would be catastrophic. And this is the kind of thing that's happening. Pre extreme precipitation events, extreme rainfall events are getting worse. They're coming, become more uh, frequent. And we, we can expect this is going to happen. We can't shut our eyes to it. And, and all the levees in the world are not going to uh, save New Orleans from a meter and a half of rain in four days. Uh, so we're going to have to think about that. And I think these are the kind of the big climate uh, forcings that are going to be affecting this area. We, we know that the Bonnie Carey Spillway is a reflection of increasing river discharge. has been opened much more frequently in the last quarter of its operation. This is probably going to, uh, this will continue into the future, but it's, it's episodic. It's, it varies from year to year. We haven't had an opening for three or four years now, but before that it was opened regularly. This is going to uh, continue. And of course, we, we've heard about uh, hurricanes. We're right in the middle of the, the hurricane belt. And uh, in the upper left there, the upper right there, you see the, this is all tropical storms. This is category three, four, and five tropical storms that, that uh, have happened, uh, I guess, in the last several decades. I'm sorry that the, uh, the, the dates are not there. Below that are uh, these models that the Weather Ser for, Service does, and these are the worst case scenarios for a Cat 3 and a Cat 5 hurricanes in terms of uh, uh, surge depth. So, and hurricanes, I say, will become, they are becoming larger, they're moving slower, they produce more rain, they're losing power more slowly over land, and uh, they'll be more likely. A paper just came out that said they'll be more likely to hit the Atlantic and Gulf Coast because winds are coming onshore because of these large-scale teleconnection systems like the El Nino and the North Atlantic Oscillation uh, and things like that. So these storms that used to pass out to sea are going to be more likely to hit land. So we're, we're going to have to face up with this. And, uh, 
And, the, and here is, uh, some of this is data, this is from a publication that we're revising right now, but there are the hurricanes here. There's the increase in Mississippi River discharge. Uh, this is the relative sea level at Grand Isle. It's, it's, it's eustatic sea level plus relative sea level. And this is from Shirley Laska at uh, UNO and from a book she published showing that these are the areas that have, you've had catastrophic flooding uh, over the past several decades d during the 21st century. So these kind of flooding events are becoming more uh, frequent. And th th this sort of puts this into personal uh, uh, perspective here. That's, uh, I'm, I'm standing there next to my two granddaughters. Uh, my mother-in-law, who's now passed away, was sitting there. This was uh, my wife and uh, my son is behind me. And if you can think about this, my mother-in-law was born in the early 1920s. And if uh, my two granddaughters live roughly as long as their great-grandparents, my parents and my wife's parents, they will live up until the end of the century. And it's a period of about 175 years. And if you look at how that's going to play out, so here are two climate projections. One is the, the worst state, uh, case scenario is this one. And this is sort of, if we do everything right, this is essentially impossible, I think. And so uh, here is my life uh, span right there. If I live as long as my parents did, uh, this is my son, you know, and this is my grandchildren. And there's a grand, uh, my granddaughter just graduated from high school. So these are in the cohort of people who are going to college right now. Uh, and they're going to be living through this. And they're more likely going to see, it's more likely we're going to get this climate scenario than this one, which is almost impossible. So it's, it's, it's the kind of thing that people living today are going to experience during their lives. And uh, so here, here's some, maybe some ideas. Uh, I'll start down here at the bottom left. This is an idea for a fortified fishing village because during these hurricanes, we have enormous losses of fishery infrastructure, especially in boats and stuff. People who've been down there after they're, they're spread out over the marsh build a, a series of these things along the coast so that they could be places where boats could be stored regularly, places for living, walls high enough that would withstand any uh, storm surge, and with gates to be closed. And, and if you store your fishing industry in here, your infrastructure, a lot of it, you, you protect it. We don't have to rebuild it. And uh, uh, they could go back out. And these things would probably cost less than $100 million, just based on some things that CPRA are doing right now. And 10 of them would cost a billion dollars, and the, the, the recreational and commercial fishing industry generates several billions of dollars a year in terms of uh, total benefits. Um, we've had a series of suggestions about what to do about New Orleans, and you can see New, this is, New Orleans is below sea level, and you could fill parts of it in, raise structures, put a cypress swamp in front of it. And uh, as th this, is, this is a suggestion that uh, Jory Erdman at LSU and some architecture students uh, suggested for New Orleans that we, you raise the whole, uh, just like was done uh, at Lakeview, do that along, all along Jefferson Parish and, and um, New Orleans Parish and then build a swamp in front of it, feed fresh water from the river and perhaps from treatment plants in New Orleans, and then within the city, raise parts of it 
or, or raise the structure so that people are not below sea level. Because if a meter and a half storm uh, dumps rain on New Orleans, people below sea level are going to flood. We can't pump out that much water. And this is an, it's out of a side view. You see here is the uh, raised land, and then behind it is land that you, you know, recreation facilities like golf courses could be used to flood, and, but buildings or land itself is raised. And you could do this, you could create quite a, the, a raised land in New Orleans that could accommodate a lot of the people living there for about $10 billion, and that's an important uh, uh, consideration. Now, this is my last slide. This is a study that I uh, just finished wor working with Ehab Maselli and one of his students down at Tulane. This is uh, when the 1927 crevasse happened, it, it put a 130 square kilometer crevasse out in Br Upper Bratton Sound, and we went out and sampled it and actually measured the thickness of the crevasse. And so it, a lot of sediment was deposited, and so I asked Ms. Ehab if he could model this to see if, we could, if he could duplicate that crevasse. And so his, his result, basically, uh, if you look at this, this figure right here, the black dots here are for the, 20, uh, the, the 2011 flood, which is one of, one of the very large recent floods, up there with the 1927 flood. And all of the, and that, so that's his total suspended sediment concentrations with discharge. These are concentrations from 1851 to 1929 at the Carrollton gauge, and some of these values get up to 1,000 milligrams per liter. So this is what used to come down the, the uh, river, and this is what comes down the black dots, and th these are data at Tarbot Landing. So this, what he found out is if he put the present river at the same discharge into Carnarvon, you couldn't build nearly as much land because the sediments aren't there. And uh, I worked with a group of people who, who looked at the potential for getting sediments out of the lower Missouri uh, dams. These are low dams, not the big ones up in uh, the upper Missouri. And by they want to manage those dams to bring sediment down the river because it's, they're, they're threatening endangered species. And we could get 100 to 200 million metric tons per year additional if we would, if CPRA would decide, well, I'm going to go spend a billion dollars up in Missouri. It would, it would be dollars much better spent in getting sediments down here so that diversions could do a much better job. And uh, I think that's it. Yeah, okay. So thank you very much, John. Uh, really appreciate not only looking at what the stark realities are of what we're kind of facing in terms of climate change, but then also starting to look at what are some potential clues for solutions, resources that we can start to bring together to, uh, to deal with these issues. So we'll uh, bring Mark up next from the University of New Orleans. So my discussion today isn't really topical like John's. Rather, what I wanted to do was just kind of um, throw out there and provide some information about what we're doing at the University of New Orleans in terms of the science associated with these types of issues that we're going to be discussing today and already have been discussed. And at the University of New Orleans, we have a couple different institutes. I see Marla in the crowd here. There's actually a, an institute called CHART. Marla, I always center for hazard and... 
assessment response and technology, okay. So they focus uh, primarily on sociological type issues that surround the current issues that we face, you know, along the northern Gulf of Mexico. And what I wanted to focus on was the Pontchartrain Institute for Environmental Sciences, which really focuses kind of on the science and the technology of some of the issues that we're facing down here. And as I mentioned, I'm currently the director of the Pontchartrain Institute. This is my second go around in about the last 15 years of being director, which probably means nobody else wants to do it, I guess. But um, no, it's actually quite fun. So <clears throat> the Pontchartrain Institute was founded back in 2001. When I first came to UNO, uh, a late dear friend and colleague of mine, Shea Penland, had this idea of developing an institute at the University of New Orleans that really focuses on coastal restoration type issues. Um, and so in 2001, the Board of Regents actually approved the institute. And since that time, with the Board of Regents, you have to go through a five-year review period to make sure that you're generating science and revenue and all those sorts of things. I just, this past spring, submitted the next five-year review and uh, just recently got word that we are approved again for the next five years. So that's good news. Um, <clears throat> the focus of the institute then within the university is to be a vehicle for research, separate from academics. Now, that's not to say that students at the university are not involved in the research of the Pontchartrain Institute, but it's not a degree-granting program. It's strictly a research um, institute within the university for transferring funds, main, maintaining equipment, and also developing relationships. So <clears throat> what we do is we conduct research across a range of different topics. I'm going to show you a, a long, exhaustive list of a bunch of different faculty who are involved in it. Um, and we also do a series of outreach programs to uh, the local high schools, uh, continuing education for teachers, uh, and the community in general. So what we're really trying to do is just foster all these relationships between the university and whether it be private stakeholder groups that are interested in coastal restoration type issues, mitigation efforts, uh, state and federal agencies, uh, pretty much across the board as well as with different academic institutions. We've worked with LSU, Tulane, ULL, just to name a few. So um, the folk, what we're really hoping to do then is, yeah, develop a very rigorous, um, exhaustive research program that focuses on all these different things, the education, the planning, um, and trying to come up with what are some practical solutions. Uh, so for example, one of the things that I work on or have worked on extensively uh, is trying to find sediment resources for beach renourishment projects, for example, that are taking place around the state. And trying to come up with, okay, the best practices that we can implement to find sediment that is suitable for those types of, those types of efforts. Uh, that's just to name one out of many different things that have taken place. Um, so we focus not only on the uh, northern Gulf of Mexico and not specifically on the Pontchartrain Basin, even though we're called the Pontchartrain Institute, but also any other system uh, outside um, this local, the regional area that has similar sorts of problems or similar types of uh, ecosystems. We've worked, in, um, we've worked up in New England, in Maine. Uh, we've worked in the Carolinas. We've worked in Florida. We've worked in Texas, um, all across the board. So a bunch of different... Um, areas, not just in the Pontchartrain Basin. And this is a lot of text here, I realized, I kind of just clipped it out of some things that were available. Um, so <clears throat> what we want to do is establish all those relationships, as I kind of mentioned, right, and then 
provide some of the answers that can go into the planning and um, the social sciences as well. So we, we hope to not only come up with, like, say, what I consider, like, pure scientific information or theory and so forth, but then be able to provide that to the social sciences as well so that they can help make decisions uh, in this regard as well. So <clears throat> what we do is we bring together a bunch of different expertise at the university. Uh, it's not just geology. It's not just earth science. Um, <clears throat> we're trying to develop linkages between all of the different sciences so that we can really focus on what the mission of the university is, which is education outreach and um, service to the community. So again, I'm not going to read all this, but what I want to point out is we currently have about nine people who are affiliated with the, with the institute, um, all the way from geotechnical environmental engineering, uh, biologists who do different uh, sorts of work within these ecosystems, uh, geologists such as myself, I consider myself a geologist primarily, um, and <clears throat> fishery biology, and then also recently we incorporated a couple chemists into the program who are looking at things like nutrient loading within the water column um, and various other chemical sort of processes. So what we think we have here is at the moment, we continue to hope to expand, is a really diverse group of expertise that can bring together, come together and try to come up with some of these practical solutions. One of the things that we're really excited right, um, uh, right now, or about right now, is a recent funding uh, that was uh, supported by the Board of Regents. This is, a, this is a proposal that was submitted by Dr. Robert Mann within our Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences. All those other people that I showed in the previous slide were listed as <coughs> co-PIs, but we just got word a couple weeks ago that the Board of Regents supported this proposal. Uh, it's a two-year proposal, slightly, I think it's around $600,000 or so. And what we proposed to do was really develop a network of instrumentation within the Pontchartrain Basin that currently does not exist, um, and use that, be able to use that information then <clears throat> to make decisions and understand what's happening within the basin itself. I mean, it's right in our, our backyard, right? So we really should have an idea of what is happening within the basin. So the proposal then is largely for the acquisition of instrumentation, but also the deployment of that instrumentation, things that include wave and weather monitoring stations, which are relatively limited within the Pontchartrain Basin, sediment concentration uh, stations to understand how sediment is moving within the basin, um, nutrient stations. And the whole goal then is that all these uh, instruments will be linked together and ultimately what we'll do is we'll have an, an, the entire network of data and information available to the public through online resources. So um, like I said, that was just we just recently got in, um, information that it was funded. So this fall we'll actually start purchasing some of the instrumentation and think about where the deployments may take place. This is just a, a basic map showing the, uh, I guess it's 10 stations where we kind of had a preliminary vision of where the stations may be placed. If anybody has any sort of input as to where would be good places for these types of stations, <coughs> please let me know. Uh, these are not uh, solid in stone as to that, the locations, and so we'll be thinking about that. And we really want to develop a, the network so that it's not just for pure science, but it benefits everybody. Right. So the other thing that we do then to try to um, facilitate um, 
the mitigation efforts down here and overall understanding of what's taking place is we have a very strong educational research program uh, run by Dinah May Garden. Uh, she's within the Pontchartrain Institute. We call it SURF. Other people, it's, it's actually dedicated to the late Shea Penland. Uh, sometimes it's called the Shea Penland Research Facility. But it's, a, it's this building down here um, in the lower right-hand corner uh, figure. You can see the building in the, in the sort of the mid-ground there. It's a, about a four to five story, I guess four story building um, that houses laboratory space. Uh, it's got kitchenettes. <coughs> There's a, there are docks underneath it for stowing uh, or slipping up boats. And it's located out in Chef Pass. So it's relatively accessible from the city by anybody who wants to take uh, students out there or wants to use it as a location for workshops. We run a number of different workshops out there. Uh, for both high school students as well as professionals. And again, a lot of text here, but um, the educational mission, we're just trying to make the general public aware of what the surrounding uh, ecosystem is like. I, one of the things that I learned when I first came to UNO and started teaching at the university was that I found that there were a lot of students who really had not been beyond the confines of the levy system and were very used to just living within the city and hadn't actually explored the wetlands and areas around them. And I, I personally find that kind of frightening if you don't know what's outside the bounds of you know, this, this boundary that has been artificially constructed around you. And so what we're trying to do then is make sure that students are aware that they get outside the levee system, that they are aware of the ecosystems that surround them, and consequently also the problems that are associated with things like rising relative sea level, uh, climate change, uh, and so on. And so as part of these educational programs that are run out there, really cover a whole bunch of different topics from the hydrology to the bugs and the bunnies that are located in the marsh or in the wetlands, um, overall estuaries, the life cycle of shrimp or crabs and things of that nature so that people get a fuller understanding of that. This is just a series of slides showing some of the uh, high school programs that have been out there, which is really focused on, you know, uh, experiential learning, getting the kids hands-on experience, getting the teachers hands-on experience too. We even find that, you know, some of the uh, high school teachers that come out there, you know, they're, they're teaching these kinds of sciences in, in the classroom, but really have never actually been into the wetlands or, or actually studied any of the marsh ecosystem themselves. So it's our hope to expand that knowledge base and that collectively between the science that we do through the Pontchartrain Institute as well as the educational component that we can really kind of collectively bring those together and help you know, create a situation where we can advance ourselves in the midst of all these uh, problems that we seemingly, not seemingly, we do face in the very near future. So just a couple different, these are just some of the local schools that we've worked with through the educational component. Um, and then also organizations, things like the Master Naturalists. Uh, we've had programs out there uh, working with them, Sea uh, Grant, and even some uh, tourist situations. So, and we hope to continue to, to, continue to grow that. So anyway, that's a kind of a rundown of the Pontchartrain Institute and what we're doing in terms of the things that we'll be discussing today. Thank you very much, Mark. So um, as we're getting into this, again, what we're looking at is the different sectors or pieces of the puzzle that are the different elements in terms of the different parts of the ecosystem. So we started out 
uh, with Harry talking about sort of higher level policy and what's going on with economic development and different pieces. And then we've heard about the science and what's happening with the coast. And uh, now we're, gonna, we're, we're moving now towards what are sort of the implementation of some of these things. So next we're going to hear from Rebecca Conwell, uh, who is the CEO and president at the beach at UNO. And that's where we start to see some of this science and entrepreneurship and new, new technologies coming together with projects and companies that can, and, 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 and giving those companies and efforts support so that we can start to implement these things. And then we'll finish up with John Atkinson talking about those, those cutting edge technologies and entrepreneurs and how do we support them in this ecosystem so that they're bringing these solution sets to light. So again, I'm, I'm president and CEO of the UNO Research and Technology Foundation. I want to give you a little bit of background so that you kind of understand our perspective and where we're coming from and where we're going now. Um, the UNO Research and Technology Foundation was formed 30 years ago for the benefit of the University of New Orleans. Uh, and approximately 20 years after that, the research park um, was created. You know, it's, it was it was done in the style of most university research parks, but over the years, it's kind of its relationship with the university kind of waxed and waned, and and a lot of the focus uh, was kind of redirected to real estate. So over the last three years, um, I came on board. Uh, we had a, a shiny new strategic plan to launch. Um, most people don't like to inherit a strategic plan. It made me want this job, um, and then over the over this time, we reorganized. Um, kind of removed our focus so much uh, on real estate and started focusing on innovation. We created an innovation division that's led by Shafin Khan, who's, who's here. Super glad to, to follow Dr. Culp and, and to hear the charts in the house um, because everything that we do um, at the beach is for the benefit of the University of New Orleans. But on a broader scope, it's about building community. We're, um, we're sitting on 30 acres. Um, if you don't know, we're located at the end of Elysian Fields on the site of the uh, Drain Beach Amusement Park. Uh, 600,000 square feet at the beach, and then we have 200,000 square feet at Avondale. I have approximately 40 tenants that include CPRA, the Water Institute, Wildlife and Fisheries. What's relevant here, I have the Navy, 200,000 square feet of Navy, of General Dynamics IT. We have this amazing um, mix of tenants who are all focused on different areas, but one of the things in common is usually technology and their relationship with the University of New Orleans. Um, so when we started like moving and, and activating the innovation division, we were fortunate enough to have a supportive board that allowed me to create an innovation fund. Um, we put $100,000 in it each year. It's designed to kind of fill the gaps between what we do at the beach and our, our partnerships with the University of New Orleans. When you think about sometimes a great idea comes about between private industry and someone at a university, sometimes it's $10,000 standing in the way of implementing it. So it's really exciting to have some money to play with that we really 100% control and we get excited because it's, it's influenced by our, our, our partnership with the university. But it's also really important to know that, that in addition to supporting our, our tenants, supporting the university faculty and staff's mission, but we're also supporting the economic development goals of our city and our, our state and our nation um, in collaboration with other entities like what John's going to be talking about um, at the Idea Village and GNO Inc. and NOLA BA. Um, 
I want to stop and, you know, and thank Greg for this panel because I think everyone that's in here really kind of highlights um, the important role of a knowledge economy. And the knowledge economy is, is perfectly situated for the kind of public-private partnerships that we have and facilitate at the beach. When you think about our ocean intersecting with our coastline, and then you put on top of it, I'm going to warn you, there's a pun coming. Um, so flag here. When you, when you take our beautiful ocean in the coast, and then you, you add um, an incredible amount of federal funding, mandates for car to reduce carbon emission, uh, opportunities for incredible revenue from private industry. What am I missing? I'm sure there's, there's a couple of other things that I'm missing. Um, you're, you're positioned for the perfect storm to be able to enjoy and see relevant transformational change um, in innovation and in partnerships. So I want to um, give you a couple of examples that we have. One of the things that um, when we started the innovation division, we re weren't focused on offshore wind. We didn't know what, we were, where, what direction we were going in. We just knew we had this beautiful university across the street and a lot of assets, and we wanted to help. Um, and the big surprise was uh, the perfect example and the perfect opportunity to engage a public-private partnership that aligns with the, the goals of, of our city, state, and our nation was offshore wind. And not only were we perfectly positioned, but we looked at all of the assets that the university had for oil and gas. You know, they had a long history for the Naval Architecture and Marine Engineering School. We have electrical engineering and civil and environmental sciences, and all of those, all of those make up a wind program. So fortunate for us, we had a very supportive president who was ready to pivot really quickly because most of you know Academia doesn't always like move at the speed of light. Um, and in a very short period of time, we set up the Louisiana Wind Energy Hub that is, uh, just became that space that we knew. Uh, I mean, it was basically from feedback from all the engineering companies that were in town. I mean, every top offshore wind engine engineering uh, company in the United States and the world has been showing up in New Orleans, of course, because of the um, upcoming opportunities with the lease. And so listening to them talk, we knew we needed a central hub at a place where people can co come to think through what innovation needed to take place and what uh, workforce needs we need because you've got this renewable energy uh, industry that's accelerating very quickly needs workforce. And there's a lot of concern that there wouldn't be enough uh, people to hold the jobs. So, in the, so the perfect example is through the Louisiana Wind Energy Hub, we were able to start introducing some of the private industry partners with our faculty and staff. Staff, Gulf Wind Technology is a perfect example. You know, they're working on Gulf, their uh, new blade, new blades for um, offshore in the Gulf, which, by the way, need are unique to the Gulf. Um, this group probably knows that. It was a big revelation to me that you can't take the a wind turbine uh, off of Block Island and put it in the Gulf, and it goes. Um, we have slower wind. We have different soil. We have more corrosive environment. We have hurricanes that need to be addressed uh, a little more frequently than they do in other areas. Um, so it's a perfect opportunity for innovation. We either have another, um, another startup that's been working on hydrogen, and I'm going to apologize because I want to I get this right. He's a, we have a startup 
that's working with our team to develop a mobile floating hydrogen generation unit that harnesses the power of storm conditions um, over the oceans. Where would this person have gone had you not been able to, to raise a flag and talk about the Wind Energy Hub? Um, we also, a perfect example of public-private partnerships would be the funding um, that we just recently received from Build Back Better grant, the Nexus. Um, the New Energy Center of the United States is part of H to the Future that GNO Inc. led. Tremendous partnership over quite a few different states. Um, the New Energy Center of the United States will be, will be located at the beach, uh, 15,000 square feet of office space that will be private, shared, and research space, perfect collaboration opportunity between academic and private industry to, uh, that will, of course, support all of the work and the innovation that we, what we're talking about today. Um, there's tons of other things to talk about. I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna wrap it up and let John go, and then I look forward to the general discussion. But I wanna, I wanna just push out there that when you have these kinds of industries all aligned, you only get yes. There was a time when, when business and science didn't like to talk to each other, and I'm sure there are people in this room that remember that. You know, you're not the boss of me. Well, you're not the boss of me, and so everybody was very content to work in their silos. But when you have federal grants that are, that are constructed that are encouraging participation, when you have the kind of revenue that's, that's possible, people all of a sudden start to value and want to work together. And we can't, we can't uh, underestimate the direction that we're, go we're going in. It's incredibly exciting. Um, I, I don't want to say once in a lifetime, but these kind of opportunities don't come around this often. So start thinking about cross-industry collaborations. Start thinking about the multidisciplinary um, projects that were mentioned earlier between uh, departments. You know, think about how can we take the, uh, the vessels um, that are going between our ports all over the world that are frequenting the water. How can you use that vessel? The Water Institute has, has, has one project where they were um, putting the sensors on the bottom of the holes. That's brilliant, you know? How can we capture other types of data? What about the farming up north, you know? How can we collaborate with our farms and give them more opportunity to better manage their farms? Better managed farms make more money, but it also reduces the amount of runoff that goes into our rivers that pollutes our, our oceans. Um, and, I mean, it should be as simple as a third grader being able to run a farm at this point, you know, that if you have the right technology in place. Um, so I'm going to stop at that um, because, as you can see, I get pretty excited and I can keep on going. So um, thank you very much. I look forward to the next conversation. So uh, raise your hand. How many folks uh, identify as not being from Louisiana or, or you're visiting from somewhere else? Okay, so just a few people in the room, uh, but good to see. Uh, so a lot of times we don't necessarily associate whether you're from Louisiana or from other parts, Louisiana being an innovation leader, technology leader. Uh, and, but that's really what Rebecca's starting to talk about and certainly what John is leading in terms of the idea village. Uh, something that I don't think we hear enough about is the uh, the idea that we've got NASA Mishu uh, is currently building the rockets that are going to that are going to deliver uh, the first woman to the moon. So there's lots of innovation going on here. All of the projects, all the solutions that we're talking about, those don't happen without talent 
and without development of new technologies. So uh, with that, I'd like to ask John Atkinson to come up and talk a little bit about what's happening with Idea Village and the startup scene and technology development scene. And I'd also ask our panel members to start to move back to the table so that we can get right into our discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Um, real pleasure to be here. Again, my name is John Atkinson. I'm the CEO of the Idea Village. Um, you're seeing in real time today the difference between scientists and deep thinkers and business people because you have all these wonderful presentations going on up here and I have a post-it note. So um, I want to share with you in true startup fashion um, two elevator pitches. One is an elevator pitch for the Idea Village, which is the organization that I run. Uh, a little bit of background on what we do and who we are in the innovation economy uh, in New Orleans and increasingly across this region. Um, and the other is an elevator pitch for why this matters. So a big part of the framing for this panel is how do we take this immense problem that we have uh, around climate change, around uh, the need to adapt, around the need to become more resilient, uh, and make that into an opportunity. Uh, and that is fundamentally what entrepreneurs do, is they take problems and they turn those into opportunities. And so um, to give you a little bit of context, uh, the Idea Village is a now getting close to 25-year-old organization uh, that was started to identify, support, and retain talent in New Orleans uh, and increasingly across this, the surrounding region. Um, we fundamentally, over our lifetime, we've served uh, close to 300, entrepreneur, 300 companies through our later stage accelerator programs. Those have gone on to, to today generate over uh, uh, half a billion dollars in annual recurring revenue uh, and to generate over half a billion dollars in outside investment in this region. Uh, they currently employ over 3,600 people um, and have generated over $1.7 billion in realized wealth just from startup activity that has been uh, that has come through our programs is over two and a half billion that we're tracking tracking across New Orleans as a whole um, since Hurricane Katrina, and so this is a real industry. It is an increasingly becoming a real part of this economy, and it is we are proving that we can punch above our weight class in terms of innovation, in terms of startups, in terms of technology, and so. How do we think about that in terms of the opportunity that is in front of us as it relates to climate tech? Um, all of the things that you've seen today are not just Louisiana problems, they are global problems. And so uh, the, the frame that I would bring to this conversation is we need to increasingly think about how do we take these local problems and the, the local energy behind problem solving, the local innovation, and think about how we export that to national and global markets. There is a huge opportunity for business creation here. And if we do not capture that opportunity, it will be a massive miss for Louisiana. I can personally see a world 10 years from now where uh, you know, we talk about our two industries being oil and gas and tourism, uh, or industrials and, and tourism. The third leg of that stool, and maybe the bigger leg of that stool 10 years from now, could be this work in climate tech. And so um, we need to, as a community, come together around that opportunity uh, and start to build the structures and resources and support systems that make this not just a way to solve our own problems, uh, but to export uh, those solutions. Um, so, you know, in our work, we talk a lot about density as destiny. So our job is really to bring together startup founders, to bring together mentors, to bring together investors, to bring together sort of all of the resources that go into creating a successful company. 
We need to start think about, thinking about how do we build that density around uh, climate-oriented founders? How do we get them access to the types of problems um, that are uh, that are sort of the real heart of the industry and heart of the opportunity. If I'm a founder and I can start with a problem that a big company has already validated for me or a big research agency or CPRA or, or any one of the other folks that we've talked about today, I'm starting, uh, you know, 15 steps out of the gate because I'm not now building a solution in search of a problem. I'm starting with a customer problem and building a solution that I know they're going to pay for. So how do we open those doors? How do we connect our innovation ecosystem to these resources um, uh, and to, to our, our legacy industries around, um, around this type of innovation? Uh, and how do we really plant a flag for this is an identity within innovation uh, that we want to express as a community? Um, so our programs historically have been industry agnostic. Uh, we work with startups across a wide range of industries. Um, but I think, you know, for this region to really um, be recognized at the level of activity that it is, uh, uh, that it has really seen to date, uh, we're going to have to start to specialize and we're going to have to start uh, to develop some industry identity around real problems of the future. And so for me, climate uh, is central to that. The other, um, the other lens that I would add here is we talk a lot about, and I love Greg's framing around adaptation and retreat. I think that is part of the equation and that's part of what we need to be talking about here. Um, but what I've seen in my career here since Hurricane Katrina is a real focus on, this, on the resilience industry and the sort of ecological science. But we also have a tremendous opportunity to build solutions for climate change, to get to the root of the problem. Louisiana is a major industrial polluter. Harry had those slides uh, in his deck showing the specifics around that. But I heard, uh, I haven't verified this, but anecdotally I was working with some folks out of the UK um, who were basically saying that the carbon footprint of the state of Louisiana is roughly equal to that of the UK as a whole and that we're roughly a fourth of the emissions in uh, the United States as a whole. And so if those numbers are even close to true, if you are building solutions to climate change, particularly on the supply side, you are going to have to come through New Orleans. So how do we capture that energy and make sure that that flows to our own uh, to our own companies, to our own entrepreneurs, to our own innovators, uh, and make sure that those solutions are being built here in this region so that this becomes an engine for economic development, not just a way to solve our own existential threats around climate change. So uh, looking forward to the discussion. Thank you all for the opportunity to be a part of it. Thank you very much, John. Uh, so we've got about 20 minutes for discussion uh, in case anybody has to start to uh, sneak out for other stuff. Uh, if, you're, if you are interested in this topic and want to hear more about it, I do want to make sure, uh, grab one of these. This is the Blue Economy Primer, which is a podcast uh, that Deep Blue puts out that is essentially looking at this blue economy and blue technology development piece and how these things come together uh, in this sort of an ecosystem approach or eco-solution space. So with that, to get things uh, started on some of our questions, and please have your questions ready because we want to get to you uh, as soon as possible. Uh, I want to start out, open this to everybody, but maybe a little bit directed uh, at Harry, um, thinking a little bit about 
you know, some of the numbers that you threw up in terms of the expenditures and the size of the projects, how this may relate to state GDP uh, and the transition away from this high intensity fossil fuel extraction economy and how we, with these sorts of opportunities, how can we be transitioning towards a sustainable, a regenerative blue economy in the coming 50 to 100 years? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, you know, certainly oil, gas, heavy industry is still, you know, a big part of, of our economy, but, you know, the, the energy transition is, is happening and it's real. And uh, we are seeing it, you know, both, you know, with the, you know, Fortune 500 companies that are making their climate pledges and trying to figure out how to do it, um, you know, and, and I think we can really be that uh, leader where we, we help inform those decisions. I mean, there I think a lot of entities, including, you know, the state, quite frankly, made a pledge, recognized, you know, based on science, and, you know, it was kind of working backwards. And it's like, okay, we, here's what we need to do to avoid the worst. Well, how do we get there? And that's where, you know, we are putting, to, you know, we put together the roadmap with the Climate Action Plan, uh, and I think other, you know, kind of the private sector is doing just the same. Um, and I think it, it kind of starts with, you know, leveraging the workforce that we already have, um, so, uh, you know, we've already talked about how, you know, offshore wind kind of draws on, you know, the, the existing workforce and, and know-how uh, and, and kind of infrastructure that we have, you know, from oil and gas. And so, you know, if you can, you know, weld an oil rig or does engineer and design an oil rig, you can do the same for the, the supports for a wind turbine. Um, you know, if you can service an offshore oil uh, rig, then you can service, uh, you know, presumably a, an offshore turbine. Um, and so I think there's those kind of directly or, or very easily transferable skills. Um, and, and then there's the, the innovation factor where, you know, well, how do we switch off of, you know, for, you know, I think like it or not, we, we rely worldwide on chemicals. Um, how do we reduce the pollution from that manufacturing of chemical process? And, you know, that, that you know, is it hydrogen? Is it, you know, uh, another, uh, you know, kind of lower emission uh, process? And I think that's where, you know, some of the investments that some of these larger uh, petrochemical companies are, are investing to try to get there because it is seen as one of the harder to abate or hardest to abate sectors of the economy. You know, you can you, know, you can buy an electric car today, and it's you know almost cost uh, uh, comparative to to a, a kind of internal combustion engine. You know, so that's kind of the transportation sector. Uh, you know, you can electrify your home. Um, you know, and you can you rely more and more on renewables and 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 battery storage for uh, the the energy the power production uh, side of things. But then heavy industry, I think everybody's kind of pushed it, you know, globally to, to the back burner a little bit of like, let's figure everything else out and then we'll get to kind of the, the heavy industry side. And, and if we can kind of lean in there and figure out how to, uh, how to produce those, those products in a, you know, lower, no carbon way, I think that is kind of bodes well for, you know, our, our, our GDP and our, uh, our economy, you know, very well. So, uh, John, I know you've got some, uh, stark reality uh, views of kind of what the future may hold, but also you brought up some uh, opportunities as well. Well, one of the things I'd like to say is, is he, one of the reasons we produce so much greenhouse gases in Louisiana 
is because the people who use our products don't produce them. And they solve their problem by putting that in Louisiana. And a lot of it's moved to the third world. You don't solve the problem. The reason we're not like Vermont or, or Oregon is because we're making all the stuff that's polluting that they're using. So they ought to help us pay for that. Anybody else want to comment on? Opportunities, economic development opportunities for the future here? I'll just expand on one, one thought here, which is I think one of the real opportunities um, that is coming down the pipe is that these conversations are starting to be less of a, a you know, business-to-government relationship and more of a business-to-business -business relationship. And the more that we can accelerate that transition where there are a diversity of different customers for people who are bringing climate innovations and trying to uh, implement those climate innovations, the faster this is going to go. And so I feel uh, the you know, bringing the chemical sector in, bringing the oil and gas sector in, uh, you know, we've done some work with Shell around their innovation um, uh, apparatus, which is called Game Changers. They don't talk about themselves as an oil and gas company anymore. They talk about themselves as an energy company. The, the oil majors, the traditional oil and majors, have embraced a climate change future, and they are trying to figure out how to transition. And so... <clears throat> And some of them may be farther along on that curve than others, but the more that we can embrace that and we can, uh, you know, truly build this as a dynamic industry cluster um, that is less and less dependent on, you know, how many dollars is CPRA spending this year, the, the, the faster we're going to turn this into a sustainable engine. Great. Thanks, John. You know, I also want to jump in, and, and, and you, you touched on the K through 12 education and the different um, environment that exists now than it did, say, 20 or 30 years ago. Our children and our grandchildren um, that are in school right now have parents that are more focused on this issue. They're learning about this issue in school. We have this renewed focus on STEM. Um, they are going to be solving problems way before they get to college that will be implementable. Uh, I love the timeline that, that, that showed, you know, at what point the young people are going to be, um, where they're going to be 50 years from now, 40 years, 30 years from now. It's going to be uh, very, very exciting to see a generation of uh, solution-oriented um, population that we don't have uh, the depth of at this time. So I have a number of questions here, but we're, we're getting down to about almost 10 minutes. I want to make sure there's time for you to ask questions. Uh, somebody have, want to break the ice here in terms of a first question? There we go. I know y'all see my head bobbing and bobbing because I am the community aspect of all you, with, with everything you're talking about. And I didn't hear it really come out from you all. But my question is, I understand building relationships, business to business, business to government, not so much business with community. In the black community, the environment and climate change was never talked about. For over 50 years, we've been dealing with it. And so what I would like to see throughout the city of New Orleans it's more outreach, direct outreach in those communities that need the communications, 
that need the information, that need the training, that need the language to understand what we are actually going through. Because climate change is a health issue that's affecting all of us, especially those of us that live in the urban environment. And what I would like to see, well, what I know is needed, not what I would like to see, because I live in Treme. And what I would like for you all to do is provide more direct interaction, contact, and funding so that we can communicate more openly and on a regular basis on how we can help change the effects of um, climate change. Thank you. Thank you very much, Cheryl. Uh, I'll just underline that in some of uh, my past work, we talk about the three-legged stool of sustainability. So something can be environmentally sustainable, but if it's not economically sustainable, meaning how do we pay for it, and if it's not culturally sustainable, then what's the point? Because then we're losing, what, what are we fighting for? So that, that cultural preservation, particularly frankly, in our lower parishes, outside the levee system, where we have unique French Cajun language, music, food, et cetera, but obviously also here in our urban areas, there are cultural heritage gems that we need to be protecting, and that has to be a fundamental part of any strategy that we're doing in terms of the type of communication and outreach that Cheryl's talking about. Anybody else want to comment on that? Yes, I, I would just... Uh kind of echo that and kind of uh, emphasize just the, that if I didn't cover it in my, I didn't cover it in my presentation, but the, the impacts of climate change are felt most acutely in, in black and brown communities, in, in uh, economically disadvantaged communities. So they are, you know, if, if South Louisiana is generally on the front line, I mean, it is those communities that are, are actually on the real front line and, and have the most to gain from Switching to renewables that improves air quality. So if you live by a, a highway or a road, you know a heavily trafficked road, you know the switching from diesel and internal combustion, you know your traditional cars, you know to to renewables uh, or to electric vehicles has a direct benefit and is benefited most most uh, acutely by uh, black and brown communities. Um, and so you know, and and I think there's a, a tremendous opportunity. I, I wholly agree. You know, more outreach and more engagement is is part of the solution if we get it if we're going to get it right and uh i think there's not that money is you know is the answer to everything but there is some really exciting uh opportunities you know and and actually uh the the deep south center for environmental justice just won uh, a very large grant to help facilitate and help to pull together uh you know the community uh, various communities, as well as you know, pulling in and connecting to to government programs, to opportunities for to put projects that they want to see in their communities. Uh, you know, like community solar. There's a tremendous amount of opportunity to have community solar. Uh, you know, across the state, uh, including you know, disadvantaged communities that can then uh, help improve not only their air quality, uh, but also improve resilience. So you know, after a storm like Hurricane Ida, you have backup power potentially to to kind of have a, a, a microgrid. So you have essential services to you know access to 
fans or air conditioning, you know, to help, you know, avoid having to, you know, turn on gas power generators that killed, uh, you know, more people than I think any of us actually expected because of carbon monoxide poisoning after, uh, after Hurricane Ida. So there's a, a tremendous amount of opportunity through, through this federal funding. Frankly, I think there's, I mean, I'm getting paid to, to be, you know, up on everything and the amount of information that, and, uh, that is coming out of the federal government in particular, trying to spend money and get projects out, you know, to, uh, communities is so fast that we need to, you know, be more coordinated and bring more people to the table to uh, make sure that 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 money is coming to Louisiana and actually getting turned into projects that that communities want. Yeah, another great project in that respect is the community lighthouse project that Together New Orleans, Together Louisiana, Together Baton Rouge is doing to uh, have a community building with uh, solar. Uh, available after storms that's uh, within a 15-minute walking distance of anybody who needs it. So uh, those sorts of things are examples, but certainly we need more. Any other comments there? I'd just echo, I, I think from the perspective of our work, a big part of what we try to do is build an open innovation ecosystem that folks can come into. I love that you, you shouted out uh, the language. I think that's a big starting point for a lot of folks is how do we, um, how do we teach people the language to start to develop their own solutions for their own communities. And that is a, uh, a, a big part of the thinking. And, um, and I think the more that we can do that, the, fla the faster the flywheel is going to spin. Okay. Another question? I'm Amy Kennedy. I also live in New Orleans. And my question is just about the LNG. How does all of this fit in? Are any of your projections kind of taken in with what's happening currently with LNG facilities, the liquid natural gas facilities that are coming in, that are currently being built, Plaquemines Parish, Cameron Parish. Um, is there any, this might not be, we have five minutes, but is there anything that you guys have thought about or contextualizing your work within that environment that's already here? So you mean in terms of community and environmental impacts from LNG as a transition? Just is, is your work kind of a push, like, when we're looking at this, this exciting work, this innovative work, how does it fit in with, with what's being legislated, with what is happening with, with LNG, with 12 projected facilities going in between here and Baton Rouge? So I hesitated to ask it because I don't want to end on that <laughs> note, but I am curious, is your work just, is it just parallel to that work and that's what your projections are based on or is it, these projections separate from from that. That I think does that make sense? But it's just a big question for five minutes, four minutes. A quick now. stab at, at least you know on the projection side. You know we we did incorporate the permitted but not yet built facilities in, in our our greenhouse gas inventory and projecting out kind of how to get to net zero. Um, so at least you know we you know at least that is that contemplated. You know that all of those projects may not get built, um, you know, they are, they're permitted, but, uh, you know, so that, that was a kind of, at least we're putting it all out there um, and recognize that it is on the landscape. Um, you know, I think the sort of economics will, I think, largely play a role in where, you know, whether all of those projects get built, um, how long they will operate for. Um, you know, I think there's, there's still a tremendous amount of coal being fired, fire, fire, coal-fired power plants that are you know, around the world. And so if, you know, 
It is, I think we were nearing the end of that long bridge, uh, you know, as a transition fuel. Um, but I think, you know, the ramping up of renewable production in particular and battery storage is what I think to me the answer is to, to actually get to the end of the bridge. It, you know, you can't, you can't take away an energy source until you already have a, a, something to fill its place. And so I think, you know, otherwise energy prices are going up, people are left in the cold. That's a way, you know, I think a surefire way to kind of have, you know, backsliding even further. Um, and so if, you, if we can kind of add in the renewables, add in, you know, that job creation from, uh, from that effort, you then kind of, one, <coughs> reduce price that then kind of reduces reliance on LNG because it is expensive to, to liquefy it, to move it all, you know, halfway around the world. So. Uh, I don't know, that's just my two cents, but. I think you probably opened up a can of worms, which is, touches on some of what John talked about in terms of, are we gonna meet the goals that are being set? And the quick answer is no, unless we really, really fundamentally change our global behavior. Uh, so that goes back to the adaptation piece of, assuming we don't meet some of these goals, what does adaptation and retreat look like in Louisiana, and what are we doing to maximize cultural preservation and environmental preservation. So we're gonna run out of time here real quick. Uh, panel members, is, uh, uh, is there any final comments that you all would like to, to make before we wrap up? All right, then, uh, then let's say, if, is there one more question we can squeeze in? I'm Micah Weltmer from the Water Institute. Um, my question is for John, and so you're, in your talk, you talked a lot about questions of how we, you know, how we take the innovation to the next level and give it to, you know, export it, things like that. So my question for you is, in, in your work at the Idea Village, what what are some of those answers that you, what are some of those handoffs that you do provide to, um, to, to your folks to give them maker spaces or to give them, you know, increased access to, uh, to resources to allow them to scale the way it's going to be needed to export them like that? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. So I, I, um, I'll also touch on one of the other points that was made in the question here, which is I think that um, one of the things that we need to do in Louisiana is reframe our thinking about economic development from sticks and bricks to people. And when we reframe around people, we can start to design those, those systems that are going to become much more sustainable over time. And so, you know, what we do fundamentally, we don't own space. We don't, um, uh, you know, we don't necessarily... Uh, do give folks direct resources. We build a community around founders that can help them do something that is very difficult in starting an innovative company, improving that model, in getting that, that product to market, that they have the right people around them, uh, the right, you know, they're speaking the right language, and they are, um, you know, set up for success and pointed towards these sort of national and global markets. Um, and so, you know, that covers the gambit of all of the things that you would think about in terms of starting a business. We, we sort of, we, we start with the input to our system as someone who is an expert in their field, who uh, has seen a problem that they want to solve. And so, uh, you know, what we do is sort of look at the problems that are common across companies and try to create systems around those to help share in those resources across companies. Uh, Rebecca wants to comment on that as well as part of what you do. Well, yeah, I, as, as a, a 
love having the Water Institute at the beach, and, and this is a discussion uh, that you have frequently when you have uh, fixed real estate. You know, you want to be able to support growing businesses. You want to uh, welcome new ones and, be, and allow an environment that's flexible so that they, because, you know, a new startup doesn't know how quickly they're going to grow. They don't, they're, they're very uncomfortable with committing to space. So we're making decisions right now that will be able to support uh, the entire ecosystem from startup to more mature organizations that um, are growing and need to expand their footprint and we don't want to lose them. Um, at the same time, we love the collaborations between uh, our tenants, that community that we're building and the University of New Orleans and other academic institutions. I think that there's a, a tremendous amount of collaboration going between our universities also as well. All right, so we're gonna have to leave it there. Uh, thank you all very much for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you to John, Rebecca, John, Harry, and Mark. Um, really, really appreciate your time and, and all the work that you're doing. Uh, I'll put up the contact information here if you want to follow up with any questions. And again, if you want more information, the, the, the podcast or our information, you can ask questions and follow up, please do. We please have a hand for our panel. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on the Blue Economy Primer. If you enjoyed today's podcast, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Please help us spread the word and be sure to visit our website at www.deepblue.academy where you can find all of our available episodes, access important links and supporting information for each episode, send us your comments and or suggestions for potential guests and topics, get more information about our community engagement initiatives, and join our mailing list, as well as make a much appreciated tax-deductible donation to support our nonprofit education and research mission. Thanks again to the Dan Lucas Memorial Foundation and the Pontchartrain Conservancy for their critical financial and institutional support. Until next time, when we meet again on the ever-expanding horizon of the blue economy.